Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John 18. John 18, we're going to look at Jesus' uh, religious trial. He's got a trial before the Jewish authorities called a Jewish trial. The language of trials, <laughs> playing a little bit loose with words here, not really a trial. Then he's got a trial before the Roman authorities, and then he ends up at the cross. So John depicts for us Jesus' Jewish trial. Actually, he's got three trials in the Jewish religious world. John only depicts one of them before Annas. He doesn't depict them before Caiaphas, but more on that in just a little bit. So John 18, we'll read verses 12 through 14 and then 19 through 24 and take a look at those same verses. So before we do so, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to your word in a spot in the Gospels where all the writers slow down and they highlight things about the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, that uh, we hope will cause our hearts to be set on fire in love for you and love for him and the Holy Spirit, that we would grow more like him and that we would just stand back and marvel at what you've done for us, sinners, worthless sinners like us, who deserve to be under your wrath forever, but have now been given this great gift of eternal life. So cause us to marvel and fashion and shape us in the ways that we need to be shaped. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. All right, uh, John 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And flip over to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening this morning, I'd like you to imagine, especially those of us who are uh, children here, that you wake up on a Saturday morning and you uh, go about all of your chores and you finish them. Mom and dad gave you a to-do list, but on this particular day, because you love your parents and you love God, you decided to go way above and beyond. So nobody told you to do it, but you went out and mowed the lawn. Now, uh, of course, your parents approved of that. You uh, uh, swept up all the floors in the house. You vacuumed everything in the house as well. And you were just finishing up uh, dusting everything around the house, all the trim, all the tables, the ceiling fans, you name it. The house is just spick and span spotless like it was when it was brand new. And one of your siblings approaches your parents who's standing right next to you and says, you know what, uh, Jackie here uh, broke the lawnmower, left it outside, ruined the lawn with the lawnmower, and also broke the vacuum. And they're doing all of, all, all of this to actually show off and uh, make us look really bad as kids. They just want to be regarded as better than us. 
and you're standing there listening to this inside of screaming a little bit, and your parent says, well, Jackie, I'm just going to believe your sibling. I'm just going to assume that you broke the lawnmower, that the lawn is all torn up, even though I have no evidence of that at all. I'm going to assume you broke the vacuum cleaner, and I'm going to assume that you have not done this out of love, but you've done this out of spite. Spite for your other siblings, and you've done this out of hatred. Now, you're standing there as Jackie, who's done all this great work, and you're thinking, what? Is this opposite day? No way. How can you say these things? This isn't true at all. This is a complete mistrial. This is a travesty of justice, right? None of that is fair. There's been no evidence to the contrary. Why am I being treated like this? And if that was you, Jackie, and you had been living about 2,000 years ago, and you were standing before Annas, and then Caiaphas, and Caiaphas, and then Pilate, and Herod, and Pilate, you would have had similar feelings. This is a travesty of justice. This is a mistrial. This isn't fair. None of this is true. Where's the evidence? And that's exactly what Jesus is going through. Not exactly, but something of what Jesus Christ is going through here as he has been arrested and now tried. And what we find before us in John 18 is really a depiction of what John's already mentioned. John 1 verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Remember, this is the high priest. You remember the establishment of the high priest under the law of Moses, the covenant God made with Moses. This is the high priest, the highest person in the religious realm. This is the Pope of the church, as it were. And here Jesus is standing in front of one of his own and he can't even get a fair trial. Isaiah depicts this as well in Isaiah 53. He was despised and he was rejected by men. Well, he was his whole life, but now it's going on steroids. It's increasing exponentially how despised and rejected he really is. But something else to keep in mind as we walk through this trial here a little bit is that Jesus has to get to the cross. He's got to die on the tree, condemned and accursed by God. The Jews can't get him there. They've got stoning at their disposal. They've already tried that. They can get him on a charge of blasphemy. It's not a legit charge, but they can get him on that. But they need the Romans to get him on a cross. And so it takes the Jews and the Romans conspiring against Jesus for all wrong motives to actually get God to accomplish his decree. Or this is how God's decree is accomplished by getting all these lawless hands to work together in tremendous injustice in order that we might be saved. So that's what's going on. The Romans had nothing against Jesus, did a lot of miracles, but as far as they're concerned, he's not breaking any civil laws. So the Romans can't get him on the cross either. Jews and the Romans working together, we'll see in just a little bit, he'll be there and we will be benefited. So I want us to walk through these two passages with no, I couldn't come up with an outline or fancy theme, but I want us to walk through it and we'll notice things as we walk uh, through it this morning. First, take a look at verse 12. The band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. So remember, you've got a group of about 600 Roman soldiers, give or take a little bit, maybe up to 1,000 people, an arresting band going out to get Jesus. You, you remember briefly that when he spoke, they said, uh, who are you looking for, Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I am and you remember what happened? They all fell over backwards on their rears, hardened, well-equipped Roman soldiers. And Jesus communicated to them in no uncertain terms that with just a word, I can knock you guys all over. 
In other words, I'm in control of this. If you arrest me and bound me, it's only because I let you do that. Jesus displaying that he is the one in charge. And it's interesting, the language here, they arrested and they bound him. And John Calvin pointed out, the body of the Son of God was bound so that our souls might be loosed from the cords of sin and Satan. Jesus was handcuffed, as it were, so that we could be redeemed out of slavery. And this is the life of Jesus, beloved, in his humiliation. He undergoes things so that the opposite can happen to us. For example, we're freed through his enslavement. We're forgiven because he was condemned. We're cleansed because he became dirty and filthy with our sin. We're declared righteous because he became sin. We're blessed because he became cursed. We are securely children of God because he became forsaken. We are now beautiful because he became ugly. So Jesus is bound now in order that we could be freed from our sin. Now Jesus is bound and he's taken to Annas. Now if you read Luke chapter 3 verse 2, discovered during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the Baptist. Luke describes both Annas and Caiaphas reigning in an office where there's just one person per year that's reigning. So how can it be that Annas and Caiaphas were both the high priest? And D.A. Carson kind of helps us understand this when he writes, Annas held the office from A.D. 6 until A.D. 15. Remember, we're in like A.D. 30 to 35 here right now. So Annas is no longer officially the high priest. But Annas continued to hold enormous influence, not only because many Jews resented the arbitrary deposition and appointment of high priests by a foreign power, Annas was actually deposed by Roman authorities but also because no fewer than five of Annas' sons and his son-in-law Caiaphas held the office at one time or another. Annas was thus the patriarch of a high priestly family, and doubtless many still considered him the real high priest, even though Caiaphas was the high priest by Roman lights. So Caiaphas was officially high priest that year. He officially held the title. But Annas is the patriarch, likely the one who yielded all the influence and if Annas would have said jump, the indication is Caiaphas would have said how far and how high. Annas was still the one who influenced and exerted a ton of power in the high priestly realm as a Sadducee. Uh, if you want an example, think of uh, even our most recent president. The claim has often been made, how, you know, why did Joseph Biden get elected in office? Because he was associated with who? One of the most popular figures all over the world, right? Barack Obama. Who's exercising influence? Who's, got, who's the president right now? Joseph Biden. Who's exercising tons of influence? Barack Obama still is, even through Joseph Biden. Annas is the Barack Obama. The one who's got the charisma, the power, the threatening power. Caiaphas is just the one who happens to be in office as his son-in-law. And likely got into that office because he was the son-in-law of Annas. Now, Annas is a Sadducee. A typical Sadducee was wealthy. They had a religious role, but they also had a very influential political role in dealing with the Romans. Annas was especially money-hungry, power-hungry, wealthy, and very powerful. And the Talmud records this about Annas. Woe to the house of Annas. Woe to their serpent's hiss. They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasure. Their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple, and their servants beat people with staves. What are these woes about? Annas was the one who controlled 
all of the revenue that came through the temple complex. So if you're going to bring a sacrifice on one of the three occasions of the feasts in Israel, you could either bring your own and walk that sacrifice up there and have it be improved by the inspectors and possibly have it fail. And if it failed, you would then buy an animal that was way overpriced and the proceeds of which, some of which would go into the back pocket of Annas. So Annas had booze reportedly outside of uh, Jerusalem, but for sure he had them in the court of the Gentiles. And his inspectors, because Annas would give them a cut as well, were happy to tell you your sacrifice isn't good enough. Here you can buy one of arms. And so Annas, on account of the way the temple operated, made tons of money. The true religion was for him a way to get rich. And he had become rich and very successful in it. John Argubright in uh, Bible Believers Archaeology wrote this, the temple sacrifice during the reign of Annas can best be summed up by the words, the marketplace of the family of Annas. The historian Josephus sheds some light on the actions of one member of Annas' family, Annas the Younger, the man who had James stoned to death. He writes this, the high priest Annas, after he had been relieved from his office, to some degree was respected and feared by the citizens, but in a bad way. For he loved to hoard money. He had wicked servants who went to the threshing floors and took the tithes that belonged to the priests by force and beat anyone who would not give these tithes to them. So the other high priests that followed him as well as his servants acted likewise without anyone being able to stop them so that some of the priests, those who were old and were being supported with those tithes, died for lack of food. Jewish history records that these high priests who walked the temple courts during the first century were despised by the majority of the people for their brutality and hunger for money. So let me, I just want to summarize this and clarify this in our minds. Annas made money off the temple in three ways. He stole tithes. He provided sacrifices at a substantially high price. When you brought your animals and they flunked inspection, you had to buy one that he would benefit from and he benefited from the temple complex financially through money exchange. If you don't have the temple currency and you bring Roman currency or other currency, you have to exchange that. Well, anybody who's been to a foreign country knows that whoever exchanges money charges a small fee. Well, Annas' fee was not a small fee and he made a cut off of it, even the money changers. So the family of Annas was getting literally wealthy and filthy rich off the temple complex. This is the kind of garbage that was going on in the temple at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was supposed to be a haven of prayer for all nations, a house of prayer for them. It was supposed to be a place where you could come and learn about substitutionary atonement, about God's holiness, about our sin and the consequences and how to pay for it, and to be encouraged to look for another, a Messiah who would come. But instead, it was a place where Annas and his family got rich. Now, just a few years earlier, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, in John chapter 2, this took place. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now I'll give you one guess who took note of that temple cleansing just a couple years earlier. Now, insert Act 2. John doesn't record it, 
But at the end of Jesus' ministry, he does a simple second temple cleansing. Were Friday here, the triumphal entry was earlier in the week. After Jesus' triumphal entry, he went to the temple and he cleansed it. We're just three or four days after that. Who do you think has taken note that Jesus for a second time has cleansed the temple? So it's no surprise that when Judas Iscariot goes to betray Jesus, but all the rulers, all the religious leaders say, we don't want to arrest him, we don't want to do this over a feast. It's no surprise that Annas is sort of the godfather would have said, I am just tired of this guy. He is hitting me right in the checkbook. If we don't get rid of this guy, he did this a few years ago, he's doing it now, we're just going to lose out on our money. So we've got to take care of this guy. So Annas, likely the one who sent the orders, probably telling Caiaphas what to do, got together a whole band of Roman soldiers, sent them out to arrest Jesus, and Jesus is standing right in front of Annas. And you can imagine how this is going to go. Annas finally gets to look at this Jesus who was causing his career a lot of financial difficulty. He gets to look at him face to face, but he's in charge now, or so he thinks, because Jesus is arrested, he's bound, he's handcuffed in front of him, and he is on trial. So now Jesus is standing in front of Annas, and we're reminded of the prophecy of Caiaphas that was formerly made or formerly mentioned in John chapter 11. If you look at John 18, verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. What an irony, if ever there was irony. Now, he had already expressed this back in John chapter 11, and we're just reminded, oh, who is this Caiaphas? It was the one who back in John 11 told the Jews, look, it's expedient, it's good for our country if one guy is going to die and he's speaking of Jesus. We were told in John 11, he didn't say this of himself. He didn't believe in substitutionary atonement, even though he's using sacrificial language. Caiaphas is actually preaching the gospel. It's, it's good for our nation that one person die on behalf of or for the benefit of. That preposition has to do with sacrifice. But he's thinking in terms of politics. It's good if we get rid of this Jesus. If we get rid of him, the Romans will probably leave us alone. But if Jesus continues like he is and crowds get bigger, it might actually threaten our power. And the whole nation of Israel, if we're no longer willing, will suffer. So it's better if Jesus dies for the sake of our nation politically. But what he didn't realize he was saying is actually it's better for the true Israel if indeed this Jesus dies. That will be profitable for everyone who's a true Israelite, which is so true. He just, again, John is full of irony. This is like maybe the ultimate irony in all the Gospel of John. This Caiaphas, who's very little different from Annas, who's concerned about the money and the power and the having his way, is actually preaching a gospel he doesn't believe. He's talking about ultimate truth when at the end of the day, he's only talking about political truth. And so he prophesied it, but he didn't believe it. And I want us just to pause for a moment before we go to Act 2, which is Jesus in front of Annas in the trial. There are always those who will use the church for power, money, and politics. They don't have a spiritual mind, thus Annas Caiaphas. Concerned about how can I use the church? How can I personally benefit from the church? How can I use the people of God, the organization of the church, in order to benefit myself financially, politically, 
famously make my name great. Annas and Caiaphas are just those people. At a time when they should have been falling down before Jesus, saying, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, the Son of God. We've seen the miracles, we've heard the teaching, we've seen all the connections between Old Testament prophecy and your life. (laughs) We are enamored, we worship you. At a time when they should have been doing that, their hearts are hard, their minds are closed, their eyes are completely blinded to who's standing in front of them. And all they can see in him is someone who's going to attack their power, someone who's going to make his name greater than theirs. And they don't like it. And they're ready and willing to kill over it. Caiaphas was concerned with one thing. If you look at chapter 18, verse 14, catch the word expedient. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The language expedient has to do with profitable or advantageous. Caiaphas is concerned about one thing. What's to my advantage? What's profitable for me and the family of Annas and the nation of Jews as a political realm? That's all he's concerned about. And he said, look, it's for our benefit. It's expedient that this Jesus should die. This is an incredible contrast with Jesus, who is not concerned with advantages in this life, but is actually concerned with our eternal life. And so he's going about this incredible work. Now, Act 2, Peter's first denial, we pick up in Act 2, verse 19 of chapter 18 in John. So Jesus is brought before Annas. He's still standing before Annas. And the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So this is the first trial, not really a trial, but it's the first time Jesus is put under questioning as it were. The second and third trials appear before Caiaphas. So first trial before Annas is at night. The second trial before Caiaphas, after Anna sends him over, is at night. And then on the third trial, they wait till daybreak to get Caiaphas, the high priest, who was the ruler of the Sanhedrin, and all the Sanhedrin together because it was illegal. It was against the law to have a trial at night. So already what we're seeing here is against Jewish law. You are not allowed to try a defendant at night. So Jesus is in front of Annas at night. He's in front of Caiaphas at night. And then They've trumped up all these false charges. They've got nothing on them. But hey, we're going to wait till daybreak. So at least we can have the appearance of doing things legally. So this can be viewed as a legitimate trial. So Annas questions Jesus. And Jesus' response is an accurate one. I've spoken openly to the world. I've taught in synagogues and temples. Why are you asking me about my teaching and my disciples? There are hundreds or thousands of people that have heard me. Ask them. So Jesus has been arrested. He's here on trial. And there are a few things we should note about this trial and why he's talking the way he's talking. This isn't defensive. He's not being snarky. He's not trying to put Annas necessarily in his place. Annas is breaking a rule of a trial. Numerous rules, actually. You can't ask a defendant to incriminate herself or himself. And Annas here... Witnesses are the ones who are supposed to be the prosecutors. If this was a fair trial, Annas would have gone out and gotten witnesses, brought them in, and the witnesses could testify against Jesus and his disciples and his teaching. Annas, who is the judge, is not supposed to be talking to the defendant, asking the defendant 
to incriminate himself or herself. But Annas does that. Trial should have been thrown out. Jesus is saying, as it were, where are the witnesses? You're asking me, well, who's accusing me? You're the judge. You can't accuse me. There's no witness here who is accusing me. Where's the testimony? Why are we even having a trial? Why am I arrested, bound in front of you? It's a legitimate question. And Jesus isn't trying to get his way out of this. Why is John recording this? Why is the Holy Spirit recording this? So that everybody and their dog will know what? That this was not just. That Jesus is innocent. That nobody has anything against him. That he's done his public ministry for three years all around for the world to see. And there is not one human being who has any legitimate claim on Jesus regarding he sinned or he's failed in the law. Not one single one. And if you don't believe it, watch how this trial goes. It's just, it's not even a trial. It's a personal vendetta. You hit me in the pocketbook. You're threatening my power. I'm going to take you down no matter what. I don't even care if it's fair. We'll do this at night. I'll ask you to incriminate yourself. We'll do this all illegally. I don't even care if you were to ask Annas. That's what his heart would be saying in order that they could hang Jesus. And then... 1822, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. The word means to give someone a blow with a stick or the palm of your hand. So this is really the beginning of what's going to take place. It'll get pretty brutal by the end, but this is the start of it. And Jesus exposes the unfairness of the trial, verse 23. He exposes the unfairness of getting hit or slapped. If what I said is wrong, bear witness. Catch that language. Bear witness about the wrong. Testify. Bring forth witnesses. If what I said is wrong, prove it. But if what I said is right, then why do you strike me? In other words, if what I said is right, you, then you need to be the one who's on trial now. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus appears before the one who has just had enough of this Jesus, who has taken him down in so many ways. And Jesus is self-controlled, fair-minded. He's talking about a fair trial. He doesn't speak with disdain or hate or prejudice. He just wants to know, testify to the truth of what I said. What do you have against me legitimately? And there's nothing. John 15, 25, Jesus said this would happen. They hated me without a cause. There is no reason why they should hate Jesus. There's every reason why they should bow down and worship him. They hated me without a cause. And what is Jesus doing here? 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. This is amazing. Put you or I in the place of Jesus, undergoing this injustice. I can guarantee what would be screaming out of our hearts and minds, even if it never came out of our mouths. No way. No way. You don't have the right to treat me like this. This is all wrong. This is unfair. And here you see Jesus willingly going through this because he knows he needs these corrupt Jews and the Romans to get him on that cross so that our sins can be forgiven after he pays for them. He knows this. And so he walks through this patiently and trusting himself to him who judges justly. Let me just conclude with this. The Jews anxiously awaited the coming of the Messiah. He was the talk of the towns for centuries, literally. 
Every decade, every year at the festivals, every generation, parents taught their kids to anticipate, to look forward to the seed of the woman, the prophet who's greater than Moses, the king, according to 2 Samuel 7, who's going to sit on the throne, David's throne forever. Parents taught their kids this. They're dying that the Messiah would come. And when he shows up, his own people, the leaders of which are most concerned, more concerned about their pocketbooks, about their money, about their power, about the system that they've had established to benefit themselves than they are about actually finding out what's true. It's just amazing how hard our hearts are, beloved, as human beings before we come to salvation, that you can look the Messiah in the face, you can look Jesus Christ in the face, God in the flesh, say, we just want to kill you. Who do you think you are? You're just a blasphemer after having seen everything and heard everything. And so go we, unless we get brand new hearts. Who crucified Jesus? In one sense, it was the lawless hands of Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and all the Roman soldiers. In another sense, it's us. In a very real sense, we're the guilty ones. We're the ones who have hearts this hard that we would rather get Jesus off our back by nature. Go away, die, get out of my life, rather than bow before him and worship him. And the only reason why we this morning in this Pelican Grade School gym and believers all over the world are worshiping him and praising him is because God's given us brand new hearts. That's his work. It's amazing work that we can sit here praising him rather than trying to kill him. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The second thing I want us to notice or maybe just chew on a little bit here is look where a life of self-preservation gets you. You can be so concerned about self-preservation in this present world that you can miss eternal life in the next world. So far as we know, Annas lived out his life, a rich, powerful man, and then he died. He preserved himself comfortably and ably in this life, even past this method of obtaining wealth onto his children. Five of his sons and one of his sons-in-law was high priest, likely fairly wealthy on account of this. And then he passed away into the next life where he will discover what every rich man who dies without Christ discovers. It's very possible that with enough ambition and selfishness and threatening and scheming, you can amass a fortune in this life and live it up and have it your way and get people to do your will but then you die and face the judge. And after you die and face the judge, who's not under your control and never was, and there's a reckoning. But it doesn't just last for 50 years or 70 years, it lasts forever. And I'd like to think Annas came to faith later on when we meet him again in Acts. But I'd like to think that Annas came to faith. If not, he will find out what every rich person who dies without Christ finds out. That in this life, you can have a lot of money exert a lot of influence and get God out of your life and have a successful life by the world's standards. But at the longest, it'll last 100 years. It's if you live really long. What's that compared to forever? And then this is the most marvelous thing of all. Now it's gonna really be exaggerated when we see Jesus before Pilate and Herod and Pilate, but I wanna just tip our hat to this. Jesus handles injustice, beloved, like we have never seen before. He's coming to his own. He's not before Pilate and Herod right now. He's in front of his own people. He is in front of the Jews. He's in front of the people that talk about looking for the Messiah. And they treat him like dirt. 
They have seen the miracles. They have heard the teaching. They have watched Lazarus come out of the grave. And yet as he stands in front of them, they want nothing to do with him because he threatens them. Because if Jesus says who he says he is, then he has to be on the throne of their lives and they have to get kicked off the throne. And Jesus handles this injustice unbelievably. Why is he doing this? First Peter 2 again, verse 24, by his wounds, you have been healed. What's going on? They are going to punish Jesus. This blow to the head is just the start. They're going to mistreat him. And when he gets on the cross, he's going to have a blow that is almost impossible to record, a blow from his father. And he's doing that so we can be healed. Jesus is going through all of this injustice so that now God's justice, instead of working against us to condemn us, can actually work for us. Jesus is doing this so you and I can be saved. As you look at this trial where Jesus falls silent, only speaks when he needs to, falls silent when he needs to, you see him in total control. What is he doing? He is making sure that everything goes according to the Father's plan and his decree, and he'll be obedient to it so that you and I can be saved. He's not going to say more than he needs to. He's not going to say less. And what emerges at the end of the trial is this guy is either a crazy lunatic who just loves suffering or this guy is a hero like we've never seen before. He is amazing. He really is who he says he is. But he has turned the world upside down because the king has come to suffer. And the king, who's the judge who will do right, has come to walk through unrighteousness and everything that's not right and unjust so that we can have eternal life with him in heaven. Lord, make haste the day when we'll see him face to face. What an incredible king who loves us. Let's pray.